This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. Kia ora koutou katoa, kua huhi mai nei, mō tēnei o tato. My name is Peter Barron, and I am the radio pharmacist, and I'm here on OAR 105.4 FM every week. Over the next half hour, we will talk about how and why and when to use medicines and other matters concerning your health. If you missed the show or wish to listen to today's show or previous shows, these are available on podcast. I'm always happy to talk about any specific issues or questions that you have, and you can contact me at The Radio Pharmacist on Facebook or on my website at radiopharmacist.co.nz. Norida, no mai, haere mai, and let's get started. And kia ora and welcome everybody. Uh, this is Peter Barron, the Radio Pharmacist, as always here on a uh, Tuesday at noon. Um, and remember, if you happen to miss today's show or you want to listen to some of our words of wisdom later on, you can always do that on the on the podcast at oar.org.nz um, or at my website, radiopharmacist.co.nz. Simply click on podcast and type in Radio Pharmacist and select the show that you want. Today I've taken the opportunity uh, to bring my sister Wendy in again. Kia ora Wendy. Kia ora Peter. And welcome back for uh, for the last of the three shows. You're heading back to Iraq uh, early Thursday morning, that long long uh, plane ride, which I don't envy you. So um, we've been discussing a, a range of things around refugees and bias, etc. And we're going to do some more about that today, but before we do that... It would be most remiss of me not to open up uh, and talk about COVID and Omicron. Uh, very clearly, we, particularly in the South here, looking at the figures from last week, we're on a definite plateau. Uh, the numbers aren't going down. They went down a little bit yesterday, but they seem to have flatlined. Uh, the wastewater results out of Southland and Central Otago don't make pretty reading. Um, so I think that we have to expect that COVID is going to be with us for some time to come. Uh, the latest modelling I've seen suggests that uh, we're probably going to peak again in perhaps July, August. It looks like there's a possibility. I know there was a uh, a big interview this morning with a lot of experts, which I haven't seen the result of yet, but it looks like we, we might be getting a second wave in Auckland. And that becomes more and more important for everybody. The million people out there, if you're one of that million who haven't had your booster dose, uh, then... You really do need to get it. You're playing Russian roulette with your health and more particularly with the health of the community because what's simply going to happen is people that get uh, get Omicron um, are going to, uh, once you get it, there's the more possibility of new variants and more resistance. Now, as I've said before, it's becoming quite clear that getting one, uh, one batch of Omicron is not necessarily going to um, protect you from getting the, the other variant. Um, so, But the thing that will protect you from serious illness is having that booster dose. So very, very important. Um, I would go so far, and I'm going to use some strong words here, if, you haven't had your, if you've had your first two and you haven't had your third one, unless you've got a sound medical reason, then you're just being grossly irresponsible. You're being grossly irresponsible to, to yourself, but more particularly, if you're not worried about yourself, then you're being grossly irresponsible to your workmates, um, to your family, to your friends, 
uh, to the people who you might work with, go to school with, etc. So, look, I'd strongly urge you to do that. The other disturbing thing is that, uh, as expected, we are seeing a huge upswing in uh, influenza this season. And I think the last figures I saw coming out of Dunedin Hospital suggest that uh, the most people, though, with getting a lot of people presenting with COVID, there are more people presenting with um, with influenza. Now, you do not want to get the combination of influenza and um, COVID. It's not a great combination. The other interesting work that's come out, they've, uh, there's been quite an extensive study which people have been puzzling why some people in the community don't appear to get COVID. And it appears to be, to do to get into the technicalities, it appears to be that for some reason some people have higher circulating levels of the T-cells, which are one of the, the, the antibodies. And it's quite possible, there's some evidence suggesting that those circulating levels may be related to getting the common cold, but the jury's still out on that. So I'd strongly urge you, please, if you haven't had your, um, your COVID booster, then please go out and get it. There's no excuse not to have it unless you've got a medical reason not to. So coming back to uh, coming back once again to talk to my sister Wendy, um, I'd sort of promoted the show and the pod, the uh, information we put out. We were talking about conscious and unconscious bias, etc. And I find it uh, find it quite interesting the language that we use. Um, I'm just going to get Wendy to talk about that at the moment in a moment because she found some interesting information, but I. Uh, just turning to another topical debate, I mean, we've, we're probably all absolutely horrified by the the mass shootings in the United States again. And what I find very puzzling is that uh, certain political groups in the United States um, who sanctify life and are opposed to abortion, but um, they're not opposed to having uh, unfettered gun control so that people can go and, uh, and take other people's lives. There's a little bit of a disconnect there. I don't quite get it, but... Wendy, you sent me a, an interesting article on um, a comment from, I think it was one of the UN chiefs this morning. Yes, I did, Peter. And it's really just what we've been talking about over the last, uh, actually not even this time, I think we, you and I have spoken about this some previous times when I've been home, it's, uh, is about what is a real refugee? And um, Filippo Grande is the head of uh, United Nations Humanitarian, or UNHCR, uh, for the short, shortened version of that. And, you know, um, again, as I say, no uh, disparagement to Ukrainians and, and what's happening because it is just abhorrent what has happened to them. But um, when he, he's saying that, you know, people are saying, well, Ukra- Ukrainians are the only real refugees in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's not true. It's not true. Anyone who's been at war or been invaded or is persecuted for whatever reason, whether it be religion, whether it be the wrong ethnic group or or whatever, um, and wants to leave that, is, is obviously a refugee. But I think, uh, again, uh, sometimes our colour blindness comes into this and, and maybe, as we talked about, uh, our unconscious bias or in some cases even conscious bias and, uh, in what we see when, uh, when I see and listen to people and, and see what comments that uh, you make and you and I have talked about this. Both you and I have worked overseas. I'm obviously still working overseas. Um, 
And, you know, it's there for I'm, I'm working because of my passion for my work, but also the, the economic side of it, that uh, I can secure my financial future by working overseas that I can in New Zealand because I can't get at age and, uh, and things like that the jobs that I can get overseas. So um, what's the difference between me and uh, someone from Mali in Africa whose parents have sent him to Europe? Um, as a and he gets called an illegal migrant or an irregular migrant or or could be you know and things like that he gets that but I get called an expat, which is a nice term, but he gets his in a derogatory term um, and we're both going for the same reasons, um, you know we're I'm not saying I'm faced face persecution or war in New Zealand but I wanted to improve my life and and that as and but these others from Africa from the Middle East have faced war, have faced persecution, and they do want to improve their lives. So um, so that that's what it is. Mm. And um, yeah. You've only, got, you've only got to look at what's happening in Yemen or what's happening in Myanmar, um, all around the world. I mean, this this notion that, that people who, that there's genuine refu- refugees and not. I mean, there are certainly people, there are people who are economic refugees, um, and um, yeah, it's just... If you're an economic refugee because your country's at war or you've been invaded or you're suffering famine, it's the same thing. It's, it's you know, you're suffering from that. And I I guess and why I, I don't know, it was just a statement that uh, Filippo Grande, uh, who I have met, um, made, is that I'm thinking that why people are thinking that Ukrainians are real refugees because their country has been invaded. I look at the country I work in, in Iraq. It was invaded by Americans and the UK-led forces in 2003. What is it, three? Yeah, mm. three. After the false declaration of uh, weapons of mass destruction that they thought Saddam Hussein had had. I've worked in Africa, Afghanistan. It was invaded by American because of, uh, of the 2000, September 2001 uh, in, in the States, it was classed as uh, America being um, invaded. NATO joined in. So Afghanistan was invaded by, uh, you know, by America and the NATO and the Russian And accepted. the Russians before that. And the Russians before that. Have a look at Yemen. Uh, it was a, Saudi, it was a Saudi-led uh, Gulf country uh, coalition that has invaded Yemen. So... I don't understand what is the difference. And, and if people are saying because Russia invaded Ukraine, that makes people, and they've had to flee their country, what is this difference from those con- other countries who have also been invaded? The difference is they were invaded by Western countries, <laughs> I think. That's my opinion. I should say I qualify that. I think that could be. Again, this comes out of maybe the bias that we think or the unconscious bias that, uh, you know, that we think about. But, um, I, I, yeah, I, that's my opinion. Yeah. So. Well, I think, I, think this, I think there's sort of something also deeper. I was listening to an interview on uh, Radio New Zealand on Saturday morning and with a um, Kiwi lady who has uh, migrated to Denmark because yeah. she, she, she met a Danish guy. And she's written a book about it, which I must read because, and it's it's fascinating. And listening to her, she was talking about, you know, we make all these assumptions. We're Kiwis, and we 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 only see the world through our own lens. And she was making the point that, on the whole, as New Zealanders, uh, most of us only see it through one lens. We're monocultural. We're monolingual. Um, 
most people are but and but are, clearly our population mix is changing clearly clearly uh with with um with maori um we've we've but people don't want to see see the world through those lens and she's make, she was just making the point that how difficult it was for her to go to Denmark and how she found the um yeah there's no word like thank you for in, in in the Danish language and she really struggled because we use we use thank you in all sorts of ways not just as a polite term we can use it in, as a sarcastic term we can use it all sorts of ways um she described how um in Denmark um it's typical with babies that the babies have set out sleep outside in the pram until it's at least uh, drops below minus 10 and she recounted the story of one a friend of hers or something getting arrested in New York because they left the baby out in the and it's it's those types of things it's those types of things that we don't see they and I think we've unfortunately um, I think a lot of Kiwis who who have lived overseas will say this we've we are a little cringeworthy at times to 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 put it mildly I sort of get rather embarrassed at sort of the some of the practices that and things that we do and say no I I, I agree with you and um, yeah it, it is an interesting I must read that book as well but it, it's even um, like myself I you know I, I travel to Europe for work and I find it interesting like if we were here in New Zealand and I was uh, you know going to Christchurch or going to somewhere where I had a relation or I had a friend or something I wouldn't ring up and book an appointment I would just kind of knock on the door but I know in like the Germany in that uh, that is just completely doesn't happen you actually have to ring up and say I'll be there and coming to see you in two weeks time kind of thing so you know just some little things that uh, is another thing and, and probably leads me on to something else that uh, you and I were talking about um, before and I often hear it and I often hear it from people who are close to me um, you know <laughs> um, you know when in Rome do as the Romans do and uh, you hear that quite often, particularly about immigrants or about refugees, particularly, and they're not just in New Zealand, but you hear it particularly in America and all that, you know, because people get upset that uh, maybe two people are speaking in a non-English language. It could be Spanish or it could be Swahili or it could be something else. And uh, people get upset and say, well, they should be speaking English because they're in the country and English is our language. I kind of put that out, you know, as you well know, I travel a lot and... Uh, put that out to when people travel and uh, listeners if you travel to say uh, East Africa do you speak in Swahili um, or if you're in Germany are you speaking in Germany or in German or or whatever um, so we have this expectation that people coming to our country should be speaking our language which is mainly English and yet when we go to someone else's country we don't return that, and uh, we expect, uh, you know, it's the same thing as food. And I've, I've just get quite astonished as um, I off travel on my own, so it means that you can travel different places, and you don't kind of always do the touristy things or, or whatever. But when you do those kind of things, and you listen to people looking for food or looking for a restaurant, and um, you know, they say, oh, we'll go to McDonald's because we know what's in the food. 
I kind of question that because I'm not too sure people do know what's in McDonald's food. But, <laughs> but, but it's a safety thing and this comfort thing. And here you are in a, in a country, at, uh, you know, it could have been China or somewhere like that, which does have fantastic food. And you have people going, oh, we'll go to McDonald's um, because, you know, we know what's, what's the thing. So it's just kind of, um, it's a bit of a double standard. Oh, it I is. Feel. And I mean, coming yeah. back to that language issue and just focusing on New Zealand for a moment. I mean, if, if you look at our, if you look at our, our population makeup, I mean, there are a significant number of people in New Zealand now who English is not their first language and never was their first language. Um, so, I mean, many many young Māori who have grown up in um, Kura and Kohanga, etc., will be fluent in English, but their their first language, the language they prefer to talk in, is Māori. Uh, you have many people from Asia who um, who in their homes, etc., will talk um, will will talk in whatever their their native tongue is, whether it's Thai or whether it's Malay, whether it's Chinese, etc., etc., etc. And we've we're very we're very narrow focused in this notion. Yes, English is one of our it's one of our three official languages, but I suspect that most most New Zealanders are not aware that we have three official languages. I'm going to correct you on that one because it's actually not an official language. It's called a de facto. It's actually never been passed. I was, <laughs> I was, uh, I was doing some research on for something, and um, or maybe I was having a disagreement with someone. Um, but yes, but Maori and uh, sign language are actually officially have been passed by the government. But English is a de facto language, and never actually been passed as a legislation or law or whatever it is as an official language. But I just wanted to. Oh, that's, that's an interesting point because to say that's a, it's uh, we say it's our official language, but it actually, if you go and, and we're a little bit, you know being pragmatic or semantic about it, it's actually it's our de facto. De that's facto a fair language. that's a fair call. It's and I'm I i should not shouldn't have made that mistake <laughs> because um, I'm aware, for instance, in the Medicines Act, um, it states very specifically that uh, labels have to be in English, etc. And we've had a terrible job in pharmacy. I mean I years ago I wanted to uh, to actually use alternate languages, use other languages, sorry not alternate languages, other languages because the end of the day, we need to communicate with people, and we were sort of told very bluntly, "No, it has to be it has to be in English, um, because if it's not in English, how do we understand it? If something and I said, well, <laughs> okay, that's. I mean, we're talking about that, and same as my work, my you know, NGO work. Um, I guess, and I will claim some credit at that, been a bit of a groundbreaker, uh, both in Afghanistan and now with the work that my organisation's doing in Iraq in the fact that um, when uh, we work with national local partners whom often, well, not more than often, um, you know, English is not their first language, but donors expect their reports, etc., their finances, etc., their monitoring and evaluation reports and all that to be in English. Now, often English is their third language. And uh, so um, when I was in Afghanistan, we, we lucky we got the support of the Canadian government um, to actually accept applications from partners in either the three languages of Afghanistan. So it was Dari, um, and uh, Pashtun and English. And we as CARE in Iraq have done the same uh, for projects in Iraq. So we now will accept, uh, particularly from women-led organisations, women focus their grassroots women and uh, say they might speak either Arabic or one of the Kurdish um, dialects. And um, so we are now um, doing that. And we are paying 
for translations. But it's been a hard time getting our donors to accept that, and not a lot of them will. There are some countries who, um, who are a little bit more progressive, and most of those countries are the ones who have got feminist-led um, policies in their international aid. That they've based all their policies around feminist uh, policies, and um, and so they have been a little bit more progressive. But again, because um, you know, here we are imposing our English onto to people, as I say, you're talking about that, uh, on, as I say, second or third language, and we expect perfect English, and we expect it, and we, and I've, I've even heard my own staff go, oh, this English is just terrible, and I look at them and go, mm, I do a lot of editing of your reports as well, or your, you know, your, your program manager does as well, and, uh, you know, so there's a little bit, even within the country, there's a little bit of, um, you know, a bit of intolerance or, and all oh, that, so, just, yeah, I understand where you're coming from. I mean, I, re- I think back to when I worked in Papua New Guinea for about 10 years, when I first went there, I mean, um, I spoke English and Māori, um, <laughs> I didn't speak pidgin, and, I mean, Papua New Guinea, if people are not aware of it, it's got something like about 860 recognised different languages, so it's about a third of the world's languages. And very often, to hold conversation with somebody, you'd be—I uh, would talk English to until I came became more proficient in pidgin. Uh, I would talk English to one of my staff, or they'd talk to me. Uh, they'd translate into pidgin. They'd actually translate into another language, and then they'd talk, perhaps talk uh, what that was called place talk. So. It would be the language that people don't understand. So very often you were having a probably a four-way conversation to to get your message across. The one of the other points that we were making, um, when I think when you worked in the Sudan, was it you had a you had an incident with a um, with a gentleman that turned up who was a Christian and had had the um, had the Bible translated and let you tell your story. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, quite going way back to around uh, 2008. Uh, I was. Uh, I had come back. I'd been working for this uh, NGO, and I came back, um, and I had to stay in a hotel. And each morning at breakfast, I would see this very tall Texan guy, and uh, you know, just wave and say hello. And then um, one day, I said, "Oh, what are you do actually doing here?" Uh, I said, "Because all I do is see you here." And, I don't. and he said, "Oh, yeah, I'm not going to try and imitate his uh, his accent, but it was a very that slow Texan drawl." And he said, yeah, I've come over, I want to go to Darfur. Now, I don't know if people are familiar with Darfur. In the height of uh, 2008, it was the height of the Darfur-led, um, well, the, now he's now ex-president uh, Bashir, was leading a, a huge, um, one would like to call it genocide, but, but probably was against the Fur tribe in Darfur. There was something like two million people were killed. Um, and this Texan had bought over a couple of suitcases of Bibles that he had had translated into Arabic, and he wanted to go out to Darfur. Now, anyone who knows Sudan, it's it's a it's a you know 99% is well, no, it's not quite true. At that time, it was a little bit of Christianity there, but it's a Muslim country, it's an Islamic country, and it's it's majority of um, Muslims. And I kind of looked at him, and. I, I said, what? And he said, yeah. He said, I can't get a visa. He said, like, every day I'm going to get a visa. Maybe today I'll get a visa. And I kind of looked and I said, I don't think you'll ever get a visa. And, he's going, and he looked at me like, what? And I said to him, could you imagine 
if a, a, a Muslim person went to Texas with two suitcases of Quran it being translated into English, what would your reaction be? He went, oh, hell no. And, all and I just looked at him and in my psyche way I said, I rest my case. And he kind of looked at me as if he didn't understand what I was saying, but it just never twigged to him that what the heck was he doing in this Islamic country taking Bibles out? And yet it was, that was okay, but it was not the okay, the other way of people taking Quran out to like of Texas. Um, I see that all the time, and it just, I just gobsmacked, and, and I really, um, I don't doubt their sincerity. I just doubt their intelligence of it at times, or, well, or their a, lack of thought, or their, or it's, a, it's that patronising attitude or superior attitude that you know, I'm right. This must be right. We've got to get this sorted out. And I'm going. This is just crazy. But you do see it, and I, um, I have very good friends who are lead faith-based organisations and NGOs and all that. And some of them are very. I would say do not push, but others, I mean, you have to even to be working for them. Uh, you have to declare and prove your you know, Christianity and your values, your Christian values. And, and for some um, particular, particularly one very large uh, NGO that I won't, uh, won't name, American one, they actually ring up your pastor and confirm that you actually attend that church that you say you do and things like that before you can actually get a job for them. There is another, and again I will not name them, huge, very well known, and it is here in New Zealand, uh, organisation that only Christians can only have the senior leadership positions. Uh, they will have a senior leadership team. Like she's a very good friend. In fact, that's why I'm going back. I'm going back to her farewell party on Friday night when I land back in Iraq. Um, but she said, "Oh, we have a senior leadership team which has Muslims, but they cannot be a country director, an assistant country director, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Now, this is a Christian. I'll say it's as big as the organisation that I work for. It's global, and uh, but there's plenty of them. I'm not saying that that's wrong. Um, but I'm not too sure it sits comfortably with me around, uh, and I would say hypocrisy. And I also wonder how they get around discrimination laws. Um, but that's that's <laughs> that's. Well, it. See, to be cynical, uh, <laughs> discrimination laws are only laws that apply to other people, aren't they? I think so. Yeah. So on that, I mean, and just coming right back to the start, we were talking about the the Kiwi lady who's uh, living in Denmark. And one of the things that struck me, she said when she got back to Auckland, she couldn't get over how friendly people were. Because she said, in Denmark, you don't talk to people. She said, even your neighbours, you stand aside on the stairs and you don't make small chat with them. She said the thing that she really noticed when she hit Auckland is the fact that everybody wants to talk to her. Strangers, people on the bus, people on the plane want to talk to her. And she said, I I was rather taken aback because she said after four or five years in Denmark, I've, um, I've forgotten what that's like. So this, we started off this talking about unconscious and conscious bias, etc. And I think it's a, that's what we're really talking about. And I think we've we've got to make sure that uh, when we we listen and look at other people, that we try and see the see the world through their lens, not just ours. So Wendy, look, I really appreciate uh, your time and your contribution over the last three weeks. We've uh, I hope been fairly controversial, and I hope <laughs> it's got a few people few people thinking. Um, I hope so. I hope you have a uh, safe trip back. It's not going to be quite as um, 
onerous this time because you're not going to have to do rats testing and PCR testing <laughs> and um, you've got your vaccine pass and you didn't have to go into MIQ. So look, once again, okay. thank you, Wendy, for That's being welcome. with us. We look forward to uh, probably doing this again in about three or four or five months' time. Folks, we're out of time, so uh, thank you for listening to me today. No reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Well, folks, all good things must come to an end, and we are out of time for today. Thanks for listening, and I hope that you've found today's kōrero useful. If you have a question for me or a subject you would like me to discuss on the show, please message me on the Radio Pharmacist on Facebook or at my website, at radiopharmacist.co.nz. If you missed today's show or previous shows, they're available on podcast at oar.org.nz. This is Peter Barron, the Radio Pharmacist, signing off OAR 105.4 FM for today. So until next Tuesday at noon, ka kite anō. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.